This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This is 1956, Part 1, Introduction. We have to consider seriously and analyse correctly this matter in order that we may preclude any possibility of a repetition in any form whatever of what took place during the life of Stalin, who absolutely did not tolerate collegiality in leadership and in work, and who practised brutal violence not only toward everything which opposed him, but also toward that which seemed to his capricious and despotic character contrary to his concepts. Stalin acted not through persuasion, explanation and patient cooperation with people, but by imposing his concepts and demanding absolute submission to his opinion. Whoever opposed these concepts or tried to prove his own viewpoint and the correctness of his own position was doomed to removal from the leadership collective and to subsequent moral and physical annihilation. This was especially true during the period following the 17th Party Congress of 1934, when many prominent party leaders and rank-and-file party workers honest and dedicated to the cause of communism, fell victim to Stalin's despotism. Nikita Khrushchev, first secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, elaborates on Stalin's crimes during his incendiary speech on the cult of personality and its consequences, performed in front of a closed audience over the 24th to 25th of February 1956. This was a man of incredible criminality, of a criminality effectively without limits, a man apparently foreign to the very experience of love, without pity or mercy, a man in whose entourage no one was ever safe, a man whose hand was set against all that could not be useful to him at the moment, a man who was most dangerous to all those who were his closest collaborators in crime. The number of victims here, the number, that is, of those who actually lost their lives, runs into the millions. But this is not to mention the broken homes, the twisted childhoods, and the millions of people who were half-killed, who survived these ordeals only to linger on in misery, with broken health and broken hearts. American statesman and author George Kennan writes on Joseph Stalin in his book Russia and the West under Lenin and Stalin, 1961. Stalin had simply been a criminal and a maniac, personally to blame for all of the nation's defeats and misfortunes. As to how and in what social conditions a bloodthirsty paranoiac could for 25 years exercise a limited despotic power over a country of 200 million inhabitants, which throughout that period had been blessed with the most progressive and 
democratic system of government in human history, to this enigma the speech offered no clue whatsoever. All that was certain was that the Soviet system and the party itself remained impeccably pure and bore no responsibility for the tyrant's atrocities. Polish philosopher Leszek Kolakowski, writing in his book Main Currents of Marxism, 1978. How much impact can one individual make on history? This question springs to mind when examining some of history's great men. Consider Bismarck Napoleon, or Alexander before them. Rarely it seems as that question applied to the life of Joseph Stalin, though. This is a strange fact, when you consider what Stalin did between taking power in the aftermath of Lenin's death and the end of his own life just over 30 years later. What Lenin left behind and what Stalin left behind were two very different animals indeed. Stalin had overseen a period of intense and prolonged danger in the Soviet Union and emerged on the other side to lead one of the world's superpowers by 1953. On paper, if we discount all other variables, facts and figures, Stalin's achievements in bringing the successor state of the Russian Empire into such a position in the world seems to Virgin Miraculous. It is this very one-sided viewpoint which has led a cult of Stalin to remain in place even to this day. You can't make an omelette, it is said, without breaking a few eggs. Stalin certainly broke eggs on a scale never before seen in Russian history. Never before, even during some of the excesses of Ivan the Terrible hundreds of years before. Did a leader of the Russians or the Muscovites or the Soviets, etc., so terrorise their own people. Stalin was not like other leaders in Russian history, though. He had no blood ties, no legitimate spiritual claim of the leadership, no Russian ethnicity, or even the blessing of his famed predecessor. This insecurity was, of course, what made Stalin so violently dangerous to his subjects. He had no legitimate claim, save the accumulation of enough power to stay in place, so he would have to forge this legitimacy with blood and several years of deliberately destructive policies. He also happened to be in possession of an endlessly ambitious appetite, in addition to his inbuilt sense of paranoia, a joyful combination which led him to do still more reckless and provocative things in the name of gaining greater powers. We've seen in the Cold War Crash Course, the prequel series to before the Korean War and When Diplomacy Fails us series, just how dependent upon Stalin's behaviour the preceding years of the Cold War were. Without Stalin, it is easy to argue that affairs could have developed differently. Yet Stalin brought his ambitions, his prejudices and his fears to bear after 1945, and he inflicted a profound misery on anyone who stood in his way. All the while, the victims of this policy were forced to sickeningly label it as just It is sometimes forgotten indeed just how great Stalin's ambitions were, or how feared and loathed he was by his peers and contemporaries. The historian Albert Parry, writing in 1956, made a declaration to this effect in an academic journal at a time that the legacy of Stalin was up for debate. Parry said, There is indeed little doubt by now that Stalin wished to see the world conquered for his rule and that the older he grew, the more obsessive this desire became. He wanted the world to be his before he was too old to enjoy such supreme power. 
He called upon Soviet medicine to prolong his life indefinitely, but he knew that someday, die he must. He wanted the world as his going-away present. Regardless of any hyperbole in this extract, I can't help but have very little love for Stalin, even while I recognise his extraordinary talents and his clear importance as a historical figure. During the Korean War series, I've seen, and we will see and continue to see, just how important Stalin was. But this series here, 1956, isn't so much about what Stalin managed to do, but what he failed to do. As all great and paranoid leaders appreciated, it was too dangerous to appoint or to groom a true successor while you were still alive, lest they push you out before your time was up. Stalin adhered wholeheartedly to this method of thinking, and the result was several years of confusion and trauma after his death by a succession of strokes on the 5th of March, 1953. For sure, several figures hovered around the leadership circle. Lavrenti Beria had been the head of the Soviet Union's secret police, the forerunner of the KGB. Georgi Malenkov had been a stable if somewhat bland minister for agriculture. Molotov had been a staple feature of Soviet foreign affairs dating back to the death of Lenin. Anastash Mikoyan, Molotov's equal in many respects, was the wily Armenian who had played his own significant role in shaping Soviet foreign affairs as well. And then we come to Nikita Khrushchev, the dark horse in the race, who had distinguished himself through his methodical obedience in the Ukraine. These men all held ambitions, and they would vie between 1953 and 1956 for a position at the top of the greasy pole. It would cost most their careers and some their lives. Of course, in the end, there could be only one, and this one was, contrary to the expectations of his peers, foreign opinion and likely Stalin himself, Nikita Khrushchev, the thick-necked, comparatively uneducated and occasionally rude official who had made his name by keeping the Ukrainian peasantry low. The question of the impact made by individuals is one we can also apply to Khrushchev, considering what followed the elimination of his major rivals by late 1955. Khrushchev's policy was to reduce and remove the worst excesses of Stalinism while still somehow retaining the system which Stalin had built since the death of Lenin. It shouldn't surprise us to learn that Khrushchev had played a not insignificant role in implementing Stalin's policies and in helping to inflate the overblown cult of Stalin as well. Yet, while that may not surprise us, it may actually surprise us at the same time to note that Khrushchev would feel so driven to undo Stalin's legacy that he wouldn't just quietly change these Stalinist methods behind the scenes. He would instead make a speech denouncing the very concept of Stalinism, epitomised by the cult of personality which Stalin had built up around him. This decision, which Khrushchev felt compelled to make for a variety of reasons we will examine in time, had a profound impact upon the peoples of the Soviet Union in 1956 and beyond. It threw up several questions, sowed intense confusion, and paved the way for demands for greater and lasting change, most notably in Poland and Hungary. The speech that Khrushchev performed, entitled The Cult of Personality and Its Consequences, has been referred to since as the secret speech, because Khrushchev delivered it to a closed session of the 20th Party Congress in late February 1956. It is the extract that we opened this introduction episode with. This secret speech, partly due to foreign intrigue and partly due to Khrushchev's own convictions, didn't remain secret for long.
In this 15-part block of episodes, the first part of 1956, our tasks will involve detailing the aftermath of Stalin's rule and the power vacuum he left behind. We will explain how Khrushchev managed to outmaneuver his rivals and reach the top of the greasy pole against pretty much everyone's expectations. We will detail how and why the decision to perform the secret speech was reached by Khrushchev and others. We will see what impact this speech had on the Soviet Union. We will follow this impact as its message is disseminated throughout the troubled satellites of Eastern Europe, above all in Warsaw and Budapest. Throughout this narrative, we'll see how the interests of the Chinese, the Americans and the British intertwined with the Soviet troubles, and how that other significant event of 1956, the Anglo-French-Israeli attack on Egypt, manifesting itself in the Suez Crisis, kept the West distracted from any shooting going down in Hungary or anywhere else, or from the intrigues in Warsaw. I don't have any real angle or bias in this case. I have no revisionist take or great mission to fulfil by covering the events of 1956 from the Soviet perspective or for when we look at the Suez Crisis. I was drawn to 1956 and the events therein for one reason above all. I think that everything that occurred within this year, including events we don't even have time to properly address, were absolutely fascinating events. I could add to this motive by saying that while I find it interesting to learn about this year and everything that happened within it, I find it even more enjoyable to share what I've learned and to bring you an in-depth analysis of a period in history which is rarely, if ever, acknowledged, never mind properly understood. This first part, focusing on the Soviet perspective, will also provide us with a kind of unofficial sequel to the Korean War series. If you wanted to appreciate what followed that conflict, or what followed Stalin's tenure in office, then this series here provides the answer. Similarly, in the second part, which looks at the Western angles and the Suez Crisis, we're greeted with what followed the Western activity and apparent unity following the involvement of the Americans, British and French, etc. in Korea. Make sure to listen to the full introduction episode to 1956, the eventful year, entitled What is 1956, to understand our structure and plans for the overall approach of this series, but... For now, I'd like to remind you guys that while this is a Patreon exclusive for people who pay $5 or more a month, the first two episodes of each part will be available in the new 1956 podcast feed as they are ready. If you're not sure whether 1956, the eventful year, is your thing, make sure and tune in for these two episodes, four free episodes in total. To all my patrons, though, who made researching and writing this series possible, I'd like to say a huge thanks to all of you once again, and I hope you feel that this series gives you your money's worth. We are thus confronted with several aims, some of them quite ambitious and others quite vague. For 15 episodes either way, we'll be detailing life after Stalin, how the Man of Steel left a similarly steely shadow and massive shoes for his unprepared successors to fill. The stumbles endured by his successors and the way which Soviet doctrine developed, reformed or backslid over the years that followed, all tell a story which I feel is underrepresented in the historiography of the 20th century, not to mention the podcasting medium. This is my contribution to such historiography, and you are all encouraged to download the bibliography, which will be ready within a few weeks, and to download the scripts as well and read along. A lot of research and discovery went into this podcast series, and in both the first and second parts, I can honestly say that I had a ball bringing it all to life, so without any further ado, I guess what I'm trying to say is, 
enjoy, and I'll be seeing you all soon. This is 1956, and I for one am dying to get started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.